In all sports, in motor learning in general, there are a few principles that explains the nature of growth and development of performers. Now, the first concept that I want to address is the power law of practice. And I'll start by saying that there is a positive correlation or, well, a connection between practice and performance. And it's pretty much easily understood in saying that the more that you practice, usually the better your performance is going to be. But there are limitations as to how strong this relationship can be down the line. In other words, the power law of practice can be easily, actually cut that, not easily explained by anything. I'm going to say that right off the bat right now. Some of us usually represent it on a graph by exponential growth, but it's usually logistical growth. And if we look at a graph, we can see our trend line starting from right at the bottom by zero. As we move across the x-axis, uh, and that'll be representing time, it goes up relatively quickly and then it starts to peak and then stabilize and taper off towards the top. That's essentially the power law of practice. And I'll explain that in a little bit more detail later on. Now the second principle would be the 10-year rule. Um, discovered by doctors uh, William Chase and Herbert Simon, or we just call them Simon and Chase. Those two researchers in the field of psychology originally devised that 10 years are necessary to become an elite athlete. And this was discovered back in 1973. Now they also did quite a bit of research with chess players and said that someone cannot reach grand master level without having at least a decade of preoccupation with that particular craft. And this isn't something obviously exclusive to chess players, but again, he was able to, well, they were able to draw out this conclusion based on their extensive studies. Now the third principle is the theory of deliberate practice. And this was uh, coined by Anders Ericsson, really interesting guy who many view to be an expert on experts. And he said that a level of expertise attained is a direct result of hours spent in deliberate practice. Practice that we would consider effortful, purposeful, and not really all that enjoyable. And that's an interesting thing. And what's tough is that the biggest progressions that you make are going to be in the earlier stages of your career. In saying that, that's you know, mostly representative of the power law of practice. You know, I said that logistic regression on a graph is the easiest way to explain it. You know, a product of resources you have access to, motivation, and effort. And it's it's easily demonstrated like when you first learn a skill, when you first get involved with a task or an activity, you know, you start to make pretty large jumps in the beginning once your body starts to um, essentially get get a feel of the task and this is obviously requiring a, a lot of interaction with the cerebellum we call that part of the brain essentially the uh, coach of the coach of the nervous system or in the case of basal ganglia ganglia helping you to regulate um, certain movements and filter out other movements and Ultimately, it's going to take a lot more time, practice, and refinement. And this happens as you get more and more advanced. You know, a track and field athlete, you know, running for a one year is obviously not going to be as skilled compared to a track and field athlete running for 10 years, especially if that track and field athlete with 10 years in the game has a lot of experience in coaching. But again, as you get older and more elite, it's going to take more time, practice, and refinement of those training techniques to get the same magnitude of improvement that you had initially achieved earlier in your training timeline. And you notice this, this trend among many top tier athletes, the magnitude of improvement varies by seconds or even hundreds of seconds depending on the event. And that improvement happens over the course of years. 
For instance, Wade Van Niekerk, the current uh, world record holder for the 400 meter dash, went from a 46.43 in 2012 to the world record time of 43.03 in the 2016 Olympics. Over the course of four years, three seconds of a difference. Brendan Rodney, a great 200 meter sprinter representing Canada, going from a 21.75 in 2010 to a 1996 in 2016. That's about 45 years of a difference. Last one, Felicia George in the 100 meter hurdles in the year 2006, running a 1466 versus a 1265 in 2012. That's, that's nearly six years and some change. And in the track and field world, or from the outside looking in, a lot of people are gonna say that's that's not that much of a difference. In the track and field world, one second is a huge difference. You know, in the last podcast, I was talking about a question I got from a high school student in the States. Um, he's a sophomore running track, and it was in regards to his potential as a sprinter. And I talked about the times that he gave me, and I also provided some background information on how he needed to structure his training program for the year, because otherwise he really wouldn't have one. Now keep in mind, we did originally have this conversation back in December, so at this point he should be in the earlier portion of his outdoor season, with the intention to run his fastest times by the end, and this goes back to our whole periodization conversation and debate we had. Now as a freshman, the last 100 meter time that he ran was an 11.7. So I told him that he had to work towards an 11.2, 11.4 range by the end of his sophomore outdoor season. Now by the end of his junior year, he should be working towards a 10.9, 11.2 neighborhood. And then throughout his senior year, get as low below 11 as he possibly can and maintain that. That's the important thing. These of course are estimations of standards, right? And can vary quite a bit depending on your ultimate goal and destination. You know, if it's NCAA D1, Ivy League D1, D2, D3, and naturally for more specific information, that's gonna be up to you uh, to wanna contact the schools that you have in mind to see what their specific uh, requirements are. But notice that the progression is going to be incremental and some people look at these numbers <laughs> with this certain magnitude of growth and it may appear to be more or less realistic. And though it is true that many athletes should get faster throughout high school because they are naturally maturing and they're getting stronger from training if they have been training consistently, you can't always expect to see the big jumps that you're looking for. At least not in the time frame that you've created for yourself. And this is what it's about as far as making smart and realistic goals. Now, I say this because being a student athlete is very different from being a professional athlete in some obvious ways. For professionals, some aspects of their day, whether it's the few hours of spent training or any other decisions that they make is obviously going to be centered around the reality that being an athlete is their primary responsibility, if that is their primary responsibility. Now for students on the other hand, especially at the university level, they need to split their time between having a professional athlete's mindset and being a relatively, I'm gonna say relatively, devoted student. Now with student-related obligations and problems, that's the tough part. And it's a lot to deal with and sometimes your performance and work in school can hinder your performance on the track and, and vice versa of course. Sometimes that time you spend on the track can hinder your performance in school. 
But let's not get this part twisted either. You know, even though so much of your time is going to be dedicated towards training as a professional athlete, it doesn't ensure that you're going to have a constant jump in analytics every year. Sometimes pros can go up to a year or longer without getting any new personal best for an event. Sometimes it's way longer than that and it can be quite discouraging. And it's sometimes because they simply don't have to run a faster time for the time being. You know, sometimes there are certain standards, you know, for those athletes who are having certain apparel uh, deals or sponsorships. There are certain standards and requirements that they have to meet running in a certain amount of meets, um, attaining a certain uh, time or getting running under a certain time cap for certain events and certain races. And that that's a standard that's necessary. And it's also because they naturally don't have to push themselves. Sometimes they don't have to run that much faster to beat a certain personal best. But ultimately this is surrounded around this concept that the body does ultimately have its limitations. And that's one of the other reasons why I say that there are no such thing as meaningless races or races that don't count. You know, take every opportunity that you have, especially when you're young, to perform and establish some numbers for yourself if you're healthy enough to compete, that is. And I'll get into this topic a little bit later, probably into another episode because it actually warrants another episode and deserve a segment deserves a segment on its own because you know it, it's ultimately about resting and load management in high school. We don't need to get into that now, but it's it's a pretty big topic. Depending on the high school or the university that you're at, you're either going to be running a little bit or you're going to be running a lot. And taking, let's just say, the York University track team schedule this year, I'm looking at it and I'm not uh, obviously not cognizant of every single meet that they ran in, but looking at their schedule from what I saw that they actually have um, analytics for, it looks like 11 meets, 12 meets including the U Sports Championship, so 12 meets altogether. And this was over the course of four point two five months about four you know four and a quarter of a month and obviously not everybody ran in every single meet that's a given but they ran in the meets that they could run in and I think that's a good approach you know you should perform whenever you're fully capable of doing so to create benchmarks for yourself throughout the year otherwise it'll be hard to gauge where you are as a performer you know look at the times that you've ran and look at the footage that you have to see what you're doing wrong and then work through those issues ahead of time you know, if you suddenly discover even a minor issue with your running mechanics, it's, it's always going to be better if you discover it four weeks in advance prior to a provincial championships than 1.5 weeks in advance. Because then at that point, not that much damage has been done and sometimes and you also have more time to fix the problem. And on the other hand, some people might raise this issue as well. You know, if if the athlete had that certain problem, shouldn't the coach have noticed it in practice or relax? that's that's it's not always that cut and dry i'm gonna say not really just because for one you know the resources that you have from a coaching standpoint vary depending on whether it's high school university but i'll, but I'll speak on this from what i've seen you know university coaches aren't always going to be in practice to see everything that you do a lot of it's very a lot of the training is very self-driven and you're going to require an, an immense amount of self-efficacy to do what you need to do you know everybody at this level they're adults you don't need a, a parent or somebody else constantly looking over your shoulder to make sure you're doing the right thing um number two high school coaches this that's when you know the resources are, are much more strained high school coaches often have to split their attention between watching multiple athletes do a certain drill at once so ultimately don't be surprised when stuff goes flying under the radar 
Number three, you're not always gonna have the opportunity to have your practices or certain repetitions recorded. That's gonna be a given. So the coach isn't always going to be able to look back and then see everything that they didn't see the first time. The fourth thing is often coaches in high school, they're, <sighs> there's no nice way of saying this. Sometimes they're not all that good or they are good, but they're trying to coach you in a specialty that isn't necessarily theirs. So I'll speak on this using this example. Uh, Chris Sims, he's a retired NFL quarterback and currently an NFL analyst with uh, NBC Sports. And from his experience, it's like majority of the quarterback coaches in college and some at the NFL level, is like don't actually know how to throw themselves or coach the position very well. And ultimately as a quarterback coach, you're gonna be in a great position if you have a natural throw of the football which means there's not going to be very much for you to correct from a biomechanical standpoint. Sure, you know, that coach might know quite a bit about schemes and how to read defenses and, and coordinate, but otherwise there isn't very much that they can teach a quarterback about playing quarterback because they don't know enough about the position personally, if that makes sense. So I'll speak on this from a track and field perspective. One young lady that I've, I've coached recently, shout out to LJ, a great athlete, She's predominantly an 800 meter, 1500 meter runner, but as of late has been making quite a bit of progressions towards running the 400 and 800. And she trains with a predominantly middle distance, long distance club. Though the problem on that account that she's ran into is that you do need to change your running approach for the sprints for the 400 and large part, particularly learning to be more explosive during her starts. You know, before I was able to sit down and, and tr talk to her and train with her, she had never really had any legitimate practice with the block starts. Didn't know how to set them up, didn't know how to get out, didn't know how to transition to a, in, into the proper running mechanics. And, and every time she had to race before meeting her, you know, her coach kind of just expected her and the rest of her teammates to know how to use the blocks, even though they never really practiced them, which uh, doesn't very, make very much sense to me. So if you don't know these things, it's a lot of times it's going to be up to you to figure them out or outsource and then ask for help that way around. You know, I often look at this example, you know, when you get to college football, for example, you'll be you'll be taught a lot, you know, but one of the things that you notice is that they don't hit in practice because by the time you get to that level as a defensive player, everybody knows how to hit. Everybody needs to know how to make a tackle. You know, if you're a quarterback getting interviewed by NFL teams, you know, asked to draw to play on the whiteboard and they look at the footage and they ask you, you know, why, why you can draw this play. It looks like you can execute it pretty well. You can explain all the different reads and coverages that you can, you can beat with this play. But when we look at the footage, how come, how come this wasn't successful? What happened here? Why didn't you pick up that blitz with that linebacker coming through the B gap in the inside corner coming around the edge? What happened there? I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know that <laughs> sometimes you can't even think of an answer for that. And then let's go back to another track scenario. You know, this is something that actually happened to one of the teams that I coach as of, as of, as of late. You're the second leg of a four by 100 meter dash relay team. And you set up your take marks for the exchange, but you don't account for the fact that the first leg that you usually have as part of your relay team was absent that day. You have a, you have a stand in, but your alternate is actually much slower than you are. Again, you're the second leg and you have an alternate that's slower than you. And that alternate actually happens to be a little bit slower for the time being just because they're still fatigued from a race that they ran, you know, no more than 12 minutes prior to this one. Yet all things considered, 
you still end up walking into the race and running it like nothing has changed. If you don't account for all those different circumstances, if you don't think about these things, if you're not critical of the situation, then you don't act any differently. You don't realize that you can't proceed the same way that you normally would had your relay team and the dynamics never been changed. So it's reasons like that where you guys end up having for one a bad start because your first runner is taxed and for two you have two really botched exchanges and you guys end up getting disqualified and and that's a tough thing that we we can ultimately point towards the athlete and say what happened what what happened what you guys do again going back to the quarterback example the defensive player that can't tackle example you know sprinters who aren't making the right decisions pre-race we talk about all these things and we criticize the athletes during evaluations until we actually realize that they just weren't taught to think as critically as we want them to. If they weren't told that they were doing anything wrong, that, then that's an offensive coordinator problem. That's a sprint coaches and relay team problem. That's a team problem. And the reality is we need practice, we need meetings, and we need competition to fix those problems.